Hello and welcome to Under Common Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. War is not only a matter of equipment, artillery, group of troops, or air force. It's largely a matter of spirit and morale. I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. And today, uh, we are doing something we haven't done in the two years of our podcast. And we are actually recording an episode in the same room. Holy crap. <laughs> Yeah, we, we started the podcast in the middle of the pandemic, and so we were recording remotely, and we've been recording remotely this whole time, and finally the stars have aligned to allow us to sit together in a room and make an episode together. I, I'm just saying, bubble, dude. Personal space. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're, you're sitting as close as you need to to get in on the mic. Yeah. yeah. We're still figuring out the system, so if the audio quality mm. ends up suffering a little bit, that is something that... I'm going to be fiddling with as we go along. We are constantly trying to improve. Um, this is a new idea, so hopefully this will uh, lessen up some work on Ian's end. This way he's only uh, editing one file instead of like two or three. Also, where we've been recording separate and remote, either one of us or net could drop because yay Xfinity. This is less likely to happen this yay, way. Yay Charter! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what our problem was. We were both using different internet providers and they didn't like playing with each other. <laughs> Very probably. Yeah. And this, this also lets us get a little more of a, a natural conversational tone, too, because it's hard to get that. I mean, that's the that's the comment that we always make about virtual tabletops. Yeah. Is, you know, it's it's hard to get that flow going oh, in a absolutely. conversation whenever you're on different sides looking at each other through a computer screen. Yeah. I mean, Ian and I have known each other for a good while, but there's still, you know, glances and body language and, and things being thrown and, and random stuff like that. <laughs> that just can't happen over a remote connection. Yeah. And, well, I mean... Most of the time, whenever we're recording, we don't have our cameras on to begin yeah. with. So we're completely going off of audio cues, and it's interesting. There is a whole dynamic to interpersonal communication that, that does happen face-to-face. -face, that does not happen remote. And even with the camera, there's that delay, there's that lag. You have that thing where it's the old um, Godzilla films where like the, the lip syncs like a half second off or a full second off. And it's like, it really does make a huge difference. So we really do hope this will kind of help make our stream a little bit more reliable uh, or relatable. And again, should be easier for us to manage and, and hopefully more palatable for your ears as well. Yeah. All right. One other little bit of business that we were wanting to touch on before we really get into this week's episode is all of the current nonsense going on oh, with, with Watsy and the OGL 1.1 or OGL 2 or whatever it is that they end up settling on. We have decided that for the foreseeable future, we're probably going to be going to a little more of a system agnostic view of everything in our content. We are not going to be releasing any more content that is explicitly 5e compatible. We're going to start exploring some other systems, some other game systems, just to broaden right. that spectrum a little bit. And honestly, this was part of the original goal anyway. And we had strived to make our discussions a little more system agnostic because there are, we did want to discuss, again, as we say in the beginning, it's tabletop gaming and tabletop content. It's not D&D. &D. Most of our speakers, our interview guests that come in are, again, creators of other systems, which I vastly enjoy unfortunately again just the culture dnd is and was the 500 pound gorilla it was the thing it was the standard and so i think this is a great opportunity for us gamers in general to explore and kind of branch out 
we can see things. We can see what works with other systems, what doesn't work in some systems. This does give a huge, huge lane for more creators to come up and fill gaps. It's kind of like when the giant tree in the forest falls over and all the undergrowth that was shaded finally has a chance to get some sunlight and produce and grow on its own. Some really awesome stuff can happen. So I am excited. Again, most of our content we did try to make more relatable, but because that's what we were also most familiar with, we did fall into the rut largely of D&D, which we hope to break from a bit. Yeah. And that's another thing that I did want to touch on. Uh, you're talking about other systems and content creators making stuff for other systems. This is my call not only for creators to start researching and making stuff for other systems, but for consumers to find those creators who are making things for D&D and are shifting to other systems, Right, go and buy their content. Absolutely. One thing that Ian had mentioned uh, the other week as we were discussing is that he was going out and he put in an order to his local game store saying, hey, I'm probably not buying any more D&D books for a while until Wizards pulls their head out of Collective Cloakia since it's a dragon. That being said, he went and he was going to buy another full game module that he could purchase for a single D&D book, rulebook. A lot of these lesser-known game contents, full game systems, are incredibly affordable. 10 bucks, 5 bucks, 20 bucks, 30 bucks. I mean, they're not terribly expensive. They're not Warhammer where you have to invest two or $300 to even start. You can go online and toss a couple dollars in a cup of coffee, and you've got a really awesome and fun game system. Yeah, I think Monster of the Week is about $25, $30 cover price. I think Blades in the Dark is $25, $30 cover price. My next purchase is going to be the latest edition of Paranoia, which comes as a box set for 50 bucks. It's the same price as a D&D sourcebook. Right. So I'm going to be getting an entire system for the price of one splat book basically right. from Watsy. And so that is my prerogative is I'm trying to I don't want to penalize my local game store because I don't want to buy a certain product. I want to keep supporting my game store. And so by just simply purchasing different games, I am able to do that. Mm -hmm. I am able to keep supporting my local game store, keep supporting TTRPG gamers but send my own very small financial message to this large corporation that I find your actions reprehensible. Right. And again, too, it is a game store. It's not a D&D store. There are huge, I mean, depending on the size of your store, but even the smallest store has a large selection of other things. Board games, tabletop games, card games, video games, online content. I mean, there are lots of things available. And so I really do think this could be the start. I mean, D&D did have a renaissance, which Hasbro and Watsi seems to be trying to kill, like the Inquisition, because I guess that's how history goes. But the gaming community in general could be on the verge of a further renaissance or growth. I, I guess we could call this a reformation at this point. <laughs> Possibly. I mean, all of this... OGL 1.1 kerfluffle, it smacks very heavily of what happened with 4th edition and the GSL, the game system license. Right. Where they decided, we're going to change the license to make it more difficult for third parties to encroach on our turf. Right. The big problem with the GSL, well, it's twofold. One, it 
excluded a lot of third-party content creators, so you didn't have the volume of materials for 4E that you had for 3E. Exactly. And 3.5. And 2, 4E was a very polarizing system. It was. Again, 4E was the Dark Ages. I have given my opinion on 4E many, many times. They did some things right. They did a great many things very, very poorly. I I won't outright say they did them wrong, but they did them poorly, in my opinion. And again, there's a ton of content creators and talking about how the game modules, if you buy a campaign set or a game set or anything like that, generally it's only the DM, maybe one or two players purchasing those. And that was the whole point of the open game license was that creators could make more content that WotC and Hasbro would not have to produce themselves. So people had more stuff to play and they could do more of the heavy lifting behind the scenes. More players would get involved. More people would learn the brand. More people would want to buy source books, rule books, things like that versus players. You would have player retention. Yes, exactly. You'd have player retention because the people would continue playing your game even if they weren't using your content. Exactly. And with this, while I understand intellectual property, I understand all that. And there is a point where intellectual property needs to be protected which is what a large large amount of the creators are having right now. Wizards really are trying to kill the goose that laid the golden egg for them. And so I foresee that one D&D <clears throat> is going to have a similar splat landing, if yeah. you will, that 4E did. Yeah. That is my... I have no... <laughs> I have no eggs in this basket. That is my uneducated prediction yes. of what's going on. Because so much of this lead-up is falling flat yeah and so i think that they have alienated enough of their fan base enough of their player base to where one D isn't going to have anywhere even remotely close to the fan base and the buy-in that 5e did right and this is really i mean again with the critical role renaissance with things coming in with stranger things 5e was roaring and they could have taken this and run miles with it. And this is well and truly like a fumble on the one yard line. I mean, this is about as big as I can picture this company dropping the ball on this one. That said, I'm not in marketing. I'm not in accounts receivable. I'm not in finances. There are people who are far more educated this that they think they've got a great idea. I don't know if they actually play the game. (laughs) (laughs) And we're not going to get into the details of the OGL and all of the controversy surrounding it right now. There are several other content creators out there that have far more expertise in the area and have already made their opinions and their perspectives on this entire thing known far more eloquently than we can. Yes. Um, D&D Shorts on YouTube. He is at the forefront of, of the fan response to the OGL. So if you want to go and figure out a the details on what's going on, I strongly suggest that you go and check out his YouTube channel. Just because he's a great content oh, creator. Oh, he's amazing, yeah. But because he has already put in the legwork and made the content, and we don't really feel the need to rehash it less well than he right. <laughs> than he already has. But what this means for Undercommon Taste is we are still going to be producing content. We are still going to be interviewing game designers, developers, content creators. We are still going to be doing homebrew. It's just not going to be as firmly rooted in 5e or D&D. We are going to be exploring more 
how to bring our homebrew content to other systems or any systems or to your own system, which really falls more in line with our original goal anyway. And I think we're going to be going a little more conceptual and a little less mechanical on Very a lot likely. of our content as well. Yes. Because concepts are easier to shoehorn into your system right. than, you know, I have a 5e monster. How do I do it in Pathfinder 2e? Or right. how do I do it in Monster of the Week? You and know. that might be a topic that we cover in the future is how to translate from D&D 5e. Again, when we broke down how to translate from older systems to 5e, we might export from 5e to other systems. Obviously, that will be some research on our end, but that would actually be a fun venture to take. I think converting 5e to Pathfinder might be something that our fan base might want yeah, at, I, at this particular juncture. And from 5, I mean, really, three 3.5 to Pathfinder to 5e is not too hard of a leap at all. Well, I mean, Pathfinder 1e what? is basically D&D 3.6. Exactly. So, so yeah. <laughs> all right. I think we have addressed this issue as fully as we can for the moment. You don't want to beat the dead horse anymore? Well, we did decide that we were going to have an episode on a topic. Yes. So uh, we should probably start addressing the topic. Fair enough. Which strangely kind of fits in, in line. This was kind of a bit of weird serendipity. But yeah. so this week we're going to be talking <laughs> about morale systems. Yes. In TTRPGs. In addition to morale, a similar mechanical side uh, that is... Also used on occasion, disposition. Okay. Which is, you meet an NPC, how do they feel towards you? I like it. So we'll get to that in a little bit. Let's, let's go ahead and start off with a morale system. Okay. So what we're talking about with morale is, you know, how likely are the things that you're coming up and trying to fight, how likely are they to fight back? Right. And so this is a huge concept, again, with a lot of RPGs, especially with older versions where they were more hostile. You would beat up on an enemy and they would beat up on your characters. But if they're intelligent, it makes sense. You're only going to get punched in the nose so many times before you're like, this isn't worth it. And they would back away or flee. Or potentially, because if everything fought to the death, then it's very more likely that your characters or your players are going to wind up dropping. This was kind of like a safety valve that Game Masters had to save or to lessen a battle difficulty for their players as well. And it's something that in <clears throat> newer editions of D&D isn't as necessary a thing. Right. Because it is so much more difficult to actually kill your player characters. Right. But in the older editions... Oh yeah, everybody died. Everybody died. <laughs> you know... If you end up having a fifth or sixth level character, you're doing good. Yeah. And you're probably still only got about 30, 35 hit points. If you have a beefy character. It, if you roll a wizard or... or, or oh, yeah. yeah. If you roll a wizard, you, you've you probably got like 15, 20 yeah, hit points. exactly. At most. Right. I mean, you can still get dropped in one go with a red dragon's fire breath. Oh, yeah. yeah it just, just comes through and it breathes on the party and it's a TPK. Right. So... <laughs> this said also with monsters, there is the monster morale, but there's also, again, talking about that immersion and the way the players play, there should be a party morale too. If you're doing good, if you're just rolling through and kicking butt and you know everything's going great, there should be some bonuses to that. If you're going through and you're fumbling or you're in a crypt or you're dealing with a monster that maybe has dropped your character to zero hit points, 
three or four times in the past. Maybe you're a little apprehensive. Maybe there's some strife within the party. You as a DM can build on this and you can bring different ways to affect this and kind of build this up as well. Yeah. So in the past, in past editions of D&D in particular, because by and large, most modern TTRPGs don't have a morale system. Many don't. The The two that come to mind, Starfinder has a morale for their ship fleet battles, which is interesting. I, I like they brought that in. The other ones that come to mind very obviously is Warhammer. Warhammer does yes. have a great morale system that is pivotal to the game at times. Yeah, well, that's also because it started as a miniatures battle game. Exactly. And the Warhammer fantasy role-playing game is basically... Okay, we're going to take this game and we're going to adapt it for a single character. Right. For single character play. Yes. As opposed to unit play. Exactly. So it makes sense that they have that morale system already built in and that it is a very robust system. Yes. I was looking through all of the books that I have on my shelf and the only things that I found actual morale systems in are the D&D 5e Dungeon Master's Guide, which... I didn't realize it was in there. Neither did I. I... Page 273. Oh, excellent. I have that in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> and going back, the AD&D 2E. Yeah, second edition definitely have Um I don't have access to those rules because I only have the player's handbook. I don't have the DMG. My Dungeon Master's Guide, unfortunately, is packed away currently. <laughs> yeah. So I don't have that. But the only other book that I have any morale system in is MCDM's Strongholds and Followers. Okay. But again, that is specifically for unit combat. Okay. Because they have their warfare mechanic where you have your units and okay. they enter into a conflict against other units and yeah. mor- morale is a thing between units. Exactly. But that really should be scalable because, again, if you're dealing with a party versus a party, instead of, you know, 30 or 40 units, you've got... Two to five. It's not that big of a thing. Other ways, other points I like looking at morale, and again, this comes more instead of the tabletop, but the video game areas. And uh, Darkest Dungeon has a beautiful, their, their sanity system is a wonderful morale check where if you're doing well, or even if you get so stretched, you can break. And it, it's less of a coin flip. I think it, it, it's definitely more towards the negative effects, but there is a chance of a positive effect as well. And it will affect how your character functions how they interact with other players, if they will accept healing, if they will accept damage, if they will self-harm, if they will harm other players in your party, if they will give bonuses to crit and you get to Darkest Dungeon 2, they start adding you know bonuses to dodge or healing. And again, inspiration is wherever you find it. So it doesn't have to be a tabletop system that already exists. You can find your morale system inspiration anywhere. Yeah. So in older editions, the morale system was specifically something for the monsters right. and for retainers. Yes. Because with retainers, these are your your hirelings. And that's something that doesn't really show up much in newer editions. No. I think primarily because the characters are so much more powerful in newer editions than they were in older editions. This does make sense, yes. And it does. Power creep is a thing. <laughs> Power creep is a thing. Also, this gives the players more agency over their character. Absolutely. It's hard to have a character and the DM tells you what your character is doing. That always feels like they're taking control of that character from my hands. I tend to rebel a little bit against that. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's my primary reasoning for going against the concept of you know, adding a morale system that affects the PCs. 
I would with this, if I were to add a morale system that would affect the PCs, I would add something like a negative one modifier or something like that. Yeah. And you could take morale, the old bard skills, you know, inspiration die. These are morale bonuses. You're feeling good. You get a little extra oomph with your yeah, thing. The, going back to third edition, the different songs that the bards would get. Exactly. You know, song of inspiration, song of courage. Exactly. Those sorts of things. Yeah. But primarily it is a thing for determining how the monsters are going to react yes. to the party. Correct. And so it's a mechanical system for the DM to determine that. And the baseline morale rules that are used in D&D stem back to 1981, the Moldvay basic set. Yes. For D&D 1E. <laughs> so basically the way that it, they set it up in the basic set is every monster was assigned a morale value. Correct. From 2 to 12. If you had a 2, you wouldn't fight. You would just run away at the first sign of danger. If you had a 12, you would never surrender. You would always fight to the death. So a 12 would be something like, you know, constructs or zombies, mindless creatures. Exactly. Or creatures that are fighting under compulsion. You know, that would specifically not have a self-preservation mechanic. Exactly. Because even something big like a dragon, you know, they may be big and arrogant and want to destroy something. I would still put them at a morale 10 or 11. Oh, I wouldn't even put them that high. Honestly, I mean, you get a dragon and dragons are old, they're wise, they know worst case scenario, they can outlive most of their enemies. I'd honestly put them probably at a five or a six, because if they take enough damage, they're just going to nope out of there and wait till a better day to fight. You say that, but from a lore standpoint, they are prideful, they are arrogant, they don't want to acknowledge that they are in the chance of defeat. Right, but that also brings back vengeance. There, there is that, but I mean, just judging by what is expressed in the lore, lore, okay, they are going to fight even whenever they think they should think that it's hopeless because their pride gets in the way. I could see that dragons are prideful creatures. They are prideful. I think color or type of dragon might influence this absolutely a bit strongly as well. Absolutely. Something again that I'd relate to more like a green or a black would probably be more sneaky and, and nope out to ambush you later versus yeah. something like a red. A red's probably going to stand and fight longer than any other color. A white would also. Because oh. they're a little more bestial. Uh, yeah, um, I can see that. That's where I don't know if pride would come in versus survival instinct. Mm, that's a good point. But still, I would, yeah. I would still put, you know... Put them higher up. Yeah. I mean, and... The age of the dragon is going to oh, affect absolutely, that too. Yes. So a young dragon would have a much lower morale score than an, a, yes, an older dragon. Absolutely. Because they know that they're not as strong as they could be. Right. They understand their limits because they haven't been around long enough. Exactly. To, you know, cement the fact that they are at the top of the food chain. And at this point, we really can relate to pride goeth before a fall. And they pride goeth before destruction <laughs> and a haughty spirit before a fall. Oh, Nice. Well done. Good correction. Thank you. I corrected a college professor, one of my literature professors, actually. Oh, nice. With that one one time. (laughs) And he was like, well, it's a colloquial thing now, so it's actually correct. I'm like, like, cop out. Something, something, haughty spirit, professor. (laughs) 
he had he had the most atrocious comb over ever. Oh. And there was more than one class where I only half paid attention because I kept getting distracted by the fact <laughs> that his comb over had half blown off the top of his head <laughs> in his walk to class and he hadn't noticed. So did anybody like try to bring in a fan or like a blow dryer in class and just kind of like... No, because it, uh, it was sort of an auditorium set up. Oh, okay. And so we were far enough back to where that wasn't really feasible. But everybody do the wave. <laughs> but yeah, he was... Uh, no, I mean, he was a good professor. Oh. Don't get me wrong, but... Comb over. Comb over. That is not a character flaw, I don't no. think. Yes, no. Yeah. Bad fashion choice, not a character flaw. Yeah. But again... Other things where morale, trying to get back on topic, yeah. <laughs> where morale might be more of a thing, things that fight in groups or hordes, like a kobold or a goblin or even an orc to a point, while the horde is larger, that morale score is going to be higher and it is going to drop, if not proportionally, then exponentially or definitely in some relatable manner to the size and how much that horde has been thinned out. Right. And even, you know, comparing... The size of that horde to the size of the party. Yeah. Because the bigger the group is, yeah. the better their morale because they're going to think the odds are better of their success. Right. Ten kobolds versus a party of five, probably going to hang in. Two kobolds versus a party of five, probably going to bolt. Yeah. So the mechanical system behind the Moldvay morale system is whenever an event happens in combat, it could be the first person to die... In the combat, or whenever a group has been reduced to half its number, right, or any of a number, the of, first fireball drops. The first fireball drops. Yeah, I mean you that know, that is a shocking moment. <laughs> absolutely, you know, you you're marching out onto the field, and then somebody drops a fireball into the middle of your unit, and half of your unit is either incinerated or is now scorched, smoldering, and on fire. <laughs> right, you know. And in a great amount of pain, yeah. that is definitely going to affect your morale. Oh, yeah. I mean, from a modern standpoint, it would be the equivalent of, you know, you're on the battlefield with your unit and somebody drops a mortar shell into the middle of your unit. Right, exactly. It's going to mess up your day. Yeah. Both physically and mentally. Absolutely. So the way that it works is whenever one of these triggers happens, you roll 2d6 and you compare it to that creature or that unit's morale score. And if you roll above their morale score, they break. Yes. And they try to flee. Right. And according to the rules, if they succeed on two morale checks within the same combat, they will fight to the death. Okay. So you don't keep checking right. afterwards. There are things that can affect the morale score, like... You know, do they have a charismatic leader? Unit size. Yeah. If you outnumber the opponent, if the, your opponent is visibly wounded. Are they under effect of a spell? Are they under the effect of a spell? Do you have the high ground? Yes. <laughs> I've got the high ground, Anakin. <laughs> exactly. And so, and all of these things, the DM can definitely build up. And this is largely part of the storytelling job of the DM. He can build this up. He can make it as grandiose or as simple as he wants. He can be, okay, you know what? You beat him up, the monsters flee. Or you can sit there and talk about how they sit there and with a sudden shock, they look around and they notice their fallen comrades and their wounds. They see the gleaming eyes of the parties and their sharpened swords. They drop their weapons and run. I mean, you can build this up as much as you want. If you're a great storyteller, you can really, really build a lot of atmosphere with that as well. Yeah. I mean, 
going back, James and I are both in the Society for Creative Anachronism. And one of the things that we do in the SCA is we put on armor and we hit each other with sticks. Yep. And there are some some of the bigger events referred to as wars where you get, you know... 50 to 100 people. Or more. Or I more, mean, yeah. I mean... Gulf, I've been to smaller wars, yeah. Gulf, Gulf wars. Penzik. Gulf wars. Yeah, Penzik is the big one. But Gulf wars, you know, you get five, six hundred people out on the field at a time. Yeah. And uh, I'll tell you one thing. I had one battle where I was with a group of guys... And we started around the front of the fort to the gate, and I get almost there, and I turn around and see that they all peeled off and went <laughs> after something, didn't tell me, I'm standing out here by myself. <laughs> Oops. And so I ended up falling in with the guys. There's a group clustered up right in front of the fort, because we were assaulting the fort. Okay. And so we just formed up a block there in the front, basically just to keep them from charging out okay. at us. And we ended up holding that position until they came out of a different entrance and circled around and flanked us. But yeah, that was an interesting moment. And that would be a morale check moment. That absolutely would be. That moment when you are suddenly very alone. You can even have that, like, if you're hanging out at a club or you're going to the mall or the store with a bunch of friends and you get separated from everybody. If you're, like, at a big fair and event and you think you're with a group of people and it's that, that moment of, like, where the hell is everyone? Now, imagine where the hell is everyone and anyone you want to see... Wants to kick you in the teeth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so now you're just looking for any friendly face. Yes. That you can just fall in with for a sense of security. Another thing to morale. And this is used less in a lot of game systems, but in a real world thing is any kind of mounted combat. If a dude's on like a horse or if you're smaller and they've got like some sort of like warg or war dog or an elephant and you've got this giant, you know, thousand pound plus beast that weighs two or three times your weight and now the person on top of it with a weapon is you know your height above you or more and they're streamlining at you faster than you can possibly run that is absolutely a morale check absolutely yeah so going into the 5e okay morale rules the way that it's set up there are a number of things listed as things which might cause a creature to flee Okay. Options are, you know, being surprised, being reduced to half health for the first time, or if it has no way to actually harm the creature that it's facing. That makes a lot of sense. That whole, it's a ghost. Yeah. I have no magic weapons. Yeah. How do I fight a ghost? Exactly. <laughs> and then there are additional options for group morale. Now, when the whole group is surprised, when the group's leader is reduced to zero hit points, they're incapacitated or captured. Okay. Or if the group is reduced to half its original size with, with no losses amongst the opposition. Oh, yeah, definitely. And so the way that it works is the individual creature or the leader of the group, or if the leader is unavailable, then the creature with the highest charisma amongst the group makes a wisdom saving throw. Okay. A DC-10 wisdom save. Right. If they succeed, they stay. If they fail, they break. Okay. I'm not a real big fan of that. It seems very simplistic. It is a little simplistic. And again, too, when you make the party break, especially if they are leaving downed party members, that could be a little rough. I'm not a huge fan of that. It's it's specifically for the monsters. Oh, specifically for the monsters. That, again, that is a little quick and easy. And I understand the appeal of that. Yes. Because this is happening in combat. You don't want a big clunky system that you have to calculate in the middle of combat. Right. It's a simple... It's a single die roll. Did they hit a 10? You know, 
Now, when I was looking at different systems, the Starfinder had a thing for their fleets, and I think was decent, if I can remember exactly. So if half of a fleet was destroyed or injured, or however you want to phrase that, you would roll, I believe it was a d20, and then the DC for this was 10 plus half of the opposing Armada's tier, and I'm not sure what the tier level's. But I could see that 10 plus the opposing party size, or if it's one-on-one, 10 plus the opposing party's level, perhaps. So, like, if you're fighting a level 10, maybe tuck that by half, so it would be a DC 15, something along those lines. But you could scale it to how big the size difference or ability difference between the two parties would be to make it less flat. Again, a little bit more calculation, but a little less one and done. Yeah. So... I found an article on Jason Alexander's blog, The Alexandrian, okay. talking about morale systems okay. and his critique of morale systems. The issue that he points out, to quote the article, a CR1 creature with a morale score of 8 and a CR20 creature with a morale score of 8 might appear to have the same morale, but it's actually much more difficult to score a first kill against a CR20 opponent than against a CR1 opponent. So the scaling of morale using the Moldvay system right. is disproportionate based on the challenge rating of the monster. I could see that, but that's also proportionate to the challenge of the game, the game system itself. When you're at a higher level or a harder level of any kind of game, it should be more difficult to get things like that. That is true, yeah. But personally, when it comes to something like this, when it comes to a morale system, I am less inclined to go with a save against a static number or save against a calculated number okay sort of deal i kind of want to see it done as more of a sliding scale okay so let's say i'm just throwing out numbers right now let's say that the scale goes from one to 20 okay and whenever you start combat default is going to be at 10 okay and then you can Shift it one way or another based on unit size, positioning, how experienced the units are. Intelligence of the creatures. Intelligence of the creatures, whether or not one side is surprised, whether it's an ambush. Okay. So those sorts of things. So you set up a starting morale on that. And then the actions which happen within the combat shift that scale one way or the other. So things like incapacitating an opponent or landing an attack or series of attacks that reduce a creature by half its health in a single round. Yes, that used to be insta-kill in some older versions of games. So something like that, or countering an opponent's spell. Oh, nice. Or seeing an opponent get a critical failure or landing a critical Critical hit. hit. Absolutely. You know, any of those things would increase your morale die. Okay. While seeing an ally killed or witnessing one of your own spells being countered or receiving that half health damage or having a critical failure or being on the receiving end of a critical hit or, you know, seeing something happen to your leader, all of those things would cause it to shift downwards. Okay. That is a bit of accounting for the DM. It could be difficult, but I do like that. We need to try to figure out how to codify that. I would really like to see this out as a functional table. And that could be something, as a tracker, is something as simple as you set a d20 on the table with the number of the enemy's morale on top. Okay. And as you go, you just change the number 
Yes. This would be something I would definitely suggest to be behind a DM screen, though. This probably isn't everyday information that the players should have. Right. But I would definitely allow my players to do something like an insight check to try and read the enemy and see oh, what their morale looks I like. I would absolutely allow um, that, yes. Or, you know, certain <clears throat> subclasses like the Battlemaster Fighter being able to read the battlefield, that is something that the Battlemaster can yes, do. I would I would agree with that, yes. There so, would be certain... Um, there used to be in a lot of game systems, it was... wasn't Death Knell, but I know a lot, particularly think games like Baldur's Gate and things like that, there was a talent or a feat where you could go and you could start gauging your enemy's health because on a lot of these old video game systems, you didn't know your enemy's hit points. And then unless you took these feats and you could see how damaged they were, otherwise they were, you know, uninjured, injured, badly injured, near death. As you took these feats for more awareness, oh, they've got three of nine hit points. Yeah. This said, one thing, uh, and again, more work for Ian. I think we should add a D12 roll to our monster mash and do monster morale as part of our creatures. I think that could be kind of interesting and fun. That could be interesting. Yeah. Um, so, the way that I'm picturing this sliding scale, though... Okay. So, like, on the upper end, if you hit 15 on your morale, then you start to get a bonus. Yes. It's so like, you would start... Basically, you would be under the effects of the bless spell. Okay. So, you like, you start getting to add a D4 to all your D20 rolls. Okay. Maybe you'd start dealing extra damage. I don't know. There has to be something really good if you hit 20. Yes, absolutely. And then on the other end, if you hit a 5... You basically fall under the effects of the Bane spell. So you start rolling a d4 and subtracting it from your d20 rolls. I like that. And then, you know, there would be ways that a leader could bolster their forces and boost the morale. And at that point, say, once you hit five, then at the start of every turn, you roll a d6. Yeah. Bring back the inspirational bard. (laughs) I mean, I love the magic bards of 5e. They're great. But that, as I get older... More and more, I realize, how, I mean, oh, what, you're going into battle with a guitar? Really, dude? No, I mean, again, giving people that bump is really... I mean, old armies had drummers and fifers for a reason. They were there. So, yeah, bring back the inspirational bard. Bring back, you know, the good oration speech from your cleric or your paladin, you know, invoking God in the middle of battle or however you want to do that, you know. Call a font of magic that surrounds and warms your players. Give your PCs a reason to take... The inspiring leader feat. Yes, absolutely. Beyond just, you know, getting some temporary hit points. Yeah, no, that'd be awesome. Yeah. So yeah, that's sort of what I'm getting at. And then, you know, so once you hit five and you're shaken, you roll a d6 at the beginning of the round. And if the result on the d6 is higher than the creature or the unit's current morale score, then they start to retreat. Okay. So the higher the morale score, the more control they have over that retreat. Okay. So, like, if they roll a six when they have a five, then it's a very orderly, you know, fall back. Fall back and fight. You know, a fighting retreat. Okay. As it were. Whereas if they are down to, like, a three or a two, it might just be a panic, drop your shit and go. I like that. Um, And then I would say, at that point... If you can reduce their morale to one, they automatically break and run. I like that. The other thing I would add is if the party or group does have a charismatic leader or captain, he should have a die check, a DC check, and I I don't know how to make this or what I would do. But to rally your breaking troops, and again, if you've ever played the Total War games, this is when you have your units break. This is an option that your unit leaders, your generals, 
your heirs do have is when they break, you can go back and, and call. There's a, a horn call. I forget exactly what the skill it's is. It's called rally. Rally, yeah. And they will rally back. And I think that would also be a very big pivotal. That would be like once per long rest type thing. Yeah. I had a thought. <laughs> Just one? Just one. I know, right? <laughs> if it comes to me, I'll tack it in. All right. So the other thing that we wanted to touch on briefly is disposition. Because disposition had a very similar mechanic the way that the disposition worked is whenever you met a new NPC, you would roll 2d6. Okay. To determine their disposition towards you. Okay. Liminal Horror grabbed this. I'm pretty sure this is an OSR feature that is drawn from the basic expert rules. Okay. So basically, you roll 2d6, and the result on the die determines their initial interaction with you. Yeah, it's that first feel you get when you get to a person. Do they creep you out? Do they seem kind of cool? Are they cheerful? Are they jovial? Do they remind you of an old family friend? That kind of thing. So the table, as listed in Liminal Horror, two is hostile. Okay. Three to five is wary. Six to eight is curious. Nine to eleven is kind. And twelve is helpful. Okay. So you're usually going to land somewhere in the middle there. Generally. Uh, So... Curious would be the middle of that bell curve. Six, I like that. six to eight. So yeah, it's something that allows you as a DM to get a better grasp on how to make your NPCs react to your PCs. Right. So that way you don't have to predetermine that. Yeah. And you don't end up constantly having the NPCs just being very helpful and very voluntary. Yeah. I mean, it's bland. You're, unfortunately, when you do that, and this is something I fall into, I think a lot of Game Masters, it is hard to plan for NPCs, especially when there's a lot of them, and they all become kind of the same gray creature, unless you've like very specifically written up something about the NPC. Right. And, you know, there are definitely things that you can take into account. <clears throat> like, if the PC that they're interacting with, you know, comes in being very gruff and yeah. they look menacing. Right. You know, maybe take a minus one on that role. Oh, absolutely. If they come in and they're very cheerful and they're very outgoing and they're very polite, maybe add a plus one to yes. it. Yes. Just to shift that a little bit one way or the other. I think there's a lot of ways. Again, your player's reaction as they interact, I think, is a great thing. You could start bringing in cultural differences, you know, within your game system or your game world if they are conflicting. Like, again, if you have two races or cultures that have a known enmity between each other, then, yeah, you're probably going to take a negative two or negative three versus if they are the same culture or clan and maybe they are a minority or outcasts, then they're more likely to want to help. I think the concept of that your reputation precedes you. If your party has been known to do great heroic acts and they are into a common town, a plus two, plus three. If they've been murder hoboing everyone, then maybe it's not the best thing that these people show up to town because maybe there's going to be some unsolved murders happening in the next night or two. Yeah, and take into account... How does your world view adventurers? Yeah. Because they might just, they might view adventurers as these are the people who go around and are the cure to all of our ills. Right. Or they can say, these are a bunch of no good troublemakers that leave destruction in their wake every time they show up. Exactly. And so their initial reaction to you is going to depend heavily on that. Right. I mean, you take this into a real world scenario. I mean, again, real world Americana scenario, because again, I, I know less cultures, but I'm sure it'd be shocking anywhere. 
that you're walking down the street of your town or your city or whatever, going to your favorite store, shopping mall, and a group of five or six dirtyish people, they probably haven't showered for a week or two, their clothes are rough, and they're heavily armed, and they very obviously come from somewhere else. That's going to put a lot of people off. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, a bunch of vagrants that are armed with, you know, high-powered weapons or swords or machine guns or what. I mean, people are going to be calling the police. That's just, what are they doing here? What they want? Get out of my town. We don't yeah. want no trouble here. We don't want no trouble here. That's about it. Yeah. And again, that disposition role, that is intended for the initial yes. reaction. Correct. And then you would adjust that as the conversation between the NPC and the PCs happened. Right. You know, if they're of a mutual agreement on something, that disposition would go up. I mean, I'm going to walk into your store, heavily armed, full armor, and I'm a paladin of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, and I'm here to slaughter all heretics. That's probably not going to give me a disposition roll against most people. (laughs) Unless you're walking into an Italian restaurant. Yes, okay. Fair (laughs) enough. (laughs) Now I want Italian food. Great. (laughs) I think that's pretty much got it for what we've uh, yeah what we've got. And again, these disposition rolls you can do a lot with them. They again they do add to that immersion to that build up. I would like to revisit this maybe later and codify things. I will say Ian and I are still planning on producing materials. I know we were actually had a lot of really big plans for the year 2023 coming up. Yay! And then again, OGL did its OGL stuff. That said. We still have things we want to codify. We are looking at producing stuff, putting things out. So I think some of these mechanics might be things we could codify and actually get concrete. Yeah, I think so. And these are generic enough that they could fall into anything Anything as basically just treated as a mini game. Yeah. So yeah, if we can do that, that would be that would be great. That's yeah. something that we can. We are we are trying to avoid the. I don't want to say the legal landmines, but that's pretty much what it is right now. We don't we don't want to trip over anything while everything is still nebulous. That yeah, that's that's a pretty good way of putting it. <laughs> um, it's like we don't know where the landscape is going, so we're just going to avoid it for the time being. Yes, we're, we're going to cast hover. Um, and uh, maybe Tensor's floating disc, and we're going to chill here for a bit. And, and yeah, we're not doing Tensor's floating disc. We're just doing floating disc. Okay. Tensor is Watsy IP. Oh, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> we are doing disc of floating. Yeah. Disc of floating. Tenny's uh, disc of floating. So, yes. Have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for future episodes? Please send us an email under commentaste at gmail.com. We still also have a presence on Twitter. So, if you want to send us a direct message on Twitter, we are at UCT Homebrew. We are also on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, Mastodon, at UndercommonTaste. Uh, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash UndercommonTaste. That's where all of our content goes. Um, we are working on some patron-exclusive content to sort of shore up the catalog of what you can get if you support us financially. We have Beneath the Lake, which is our liminal horror adventure I have just wrapped up the rough draft for Forever Home, which is going to be my Anamnesis Jam solo journaling RPG. And we've got several other projects in the works. Uh, We are also still hashing out details on potentially doing patron-exclusive episodes or possibly even having early access to episodes for patrons. So that is something that we're still working on. Hopefully by next episode we'll have something a little more concrete that we can talk about. Exactly. Uh, We have a Discord. 
The link to the Discord is in our show notes. We'd love to have you come over and chat with us. And finally, we have an itch store. So if you want to help support us financially, but you don't want to commit to a monthly subscription, you can go over to undercommontaste.itch.io and find all of our games. Currently, it is just beneath the lake, our liminal horror adventure for $3. Whenever I finally get the layout done for Forever Home, it is also going to be available there. Current thought is that it will also be $3. Excellent. I do want to say, if this is your first podcast you're listening to us, welcome. We're glad to have you. You can find our other podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, all of those. As always, please give us a rating and review. This lets us know what kind of content you want to hear more of, more systems, more interviews, more world building, that kind of thing. Also helps increase our visibility. And I do want to go ahead and say, as we've talked about, if you are wanting to go ahead and explore other game systems, I do want to throw this in. H.io is a great way to explore other game systems that people have created and put up. Again, prices can go from whatever to extremely affordable. Go ahead and give that an explore. It is a wonderful, vast resource with a lot of wonderful nuggets in there. Yeah, there are a lot of free games on itch. There are a lot of games that have free community copies on itch. So, yes, that is absolutely a great way to go about you know just explore the landscape yeah. of indie games and find some creators that you really like and then you can throw money at them yeah and maybe they're the next big thing and you maybe be there first yeah all those hipster <laughs> hipster gamers hipster gamers <laughs> so thank you once again for joining us stay safe we will see you again in two weeks our next episode we are going to be talking about lycanthropes happy gaming Thanks for joining us for another episode of Under Common Taste. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Kroll and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycroll.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycroll. Our logo is by David Sutherland. You can find more of David's work on deviantart.com slash davidsutherland or on instagram.com slash willx underscore 73. We'll be back in two weeks, so stay safe, and we'll see you then.